morning. One of the things I love about Alive is that we can't all fit in this room, which is cool. And so you may not know it, but we actually worship here. We also worship in the chapel. We also worship out at Pleasant View. And then actually we have people who follow along online, which is amazing. So welcome you guys to this morning. This is the second week in our Curtain series. And this is a Curtain series that leads all the way up to Easter. And Easter is so crucial for us as believers. And it's really what we're all about. And so I'm so excited to get into this morning and what we have to say about who Jesus is and what he's done. But before we do that, I need to reveal something that I've been working on for a little bit. And this is something that's probably been in my mind for a long time. I've been collecting kind of thoughts and ideas, but I've really only been able to articulate it recently. And that is that I've found that there are three types of people in the bathroom who wash their hands three different ways. Okay, And I want to share this with you guys because I need to get this off my chest a little bit. And uh, so the, the three things, uh, three ways, they all have names. So the first one is the phantom. And uh, the phantom is the one where you know that someone's in the bathroom with you, but when you turn around to go wash your hands, they're gone, right? And they just disappear, and you see just a swinging door where they, they're supposed to be. And I don't know if these people are just exceptionally busy, or if they maybe believe that they're going to create an ultra germ or like massive virus by washing their hands, because that's a theory that's out there. Um, I can respect that a little bit if they think that's the case, but I don't know what's going through this person's head, although I have to admit, for much of my life, I was that person. It's gross, and I'm sorry, it's not been in years, so if you shake my hand or shook it recently, we're good. But the phantom is just gone, right? And that's one style. The second style I've seen is kind of the social washer. And you can probably guess, this is the one that really, they're at the sink, and they're kind of looking over their shoulder, like making sure, like, am I alone? Because if I'm not... I better wash my hands. And if they, if they were alone, they might even just jet. They might be a phantom. But because there's kind of pressure on them, they, they stop and they wash. And they might like, you know, they might wash like a little bit. Like if there's an automatic and it takes a while, they might not even get water on their hands. You know what I mean? They might just try it out and like hit stuff. And they're like hitting the soap thing, but nothing's coming out and they're fine with it. When it comes time to drying, if there's an automatic dryer, you know they're not staying. There is no time for that. They did their thing already. They're probably going to do one of these on the way out, right? And this is a little bit better because at least they might have gotten a few drops splashed on them, you know. And it's the thought that counts in that situation, right? At least they're, they're looking out for other people. But they know that there are people watching, so they're the social washer. And then there's a third kind. And I've been there too, by the way. I've, I've been a social washer. This is the third kind, and this is where I rest in my life right now because I have kids. And kids are disgusting. And kids are carriers of every German virus known to man. And so I know right now that my kids, for the first four years of their life, their entire goal is to get me sick. So I am now the third one, and this is what I call the surgeon. And this is a person who walks in, and they know, like, when they go up, they know what they're doing, and you see them get in the zone in almost like a, a good wide base, like a good stance, you know, and they get up to the sink, and they're testing the water because it's got to be hot, right? So they don't even mess around if it's cold. They just stand and wait, or they hold their hand there. They probably take the rings off, set that stuff aside because they don't, they don't mess around. When the water comes on, they pre-rinse, and this is important. You pre-rinse the stuff off first so the soap works better. And then you see them get the soap, and it's way too much, but they know what they're doing. So you're like, okay, whatever, I'll just wait. Sometimes it's not enough, and they actually, like, pull Purell out of their pocket. And they're like, 99.9, that's what I'm after right now. So they're washing their hands, and they're washing, and they're washing, and you're, they're washing, and they're washing. And you're like, what is happening? And you think maybe this person is actually a surgeon. Like, they're actually about to scrub in and go save someone's life, and maybe that's why they're doing this. They're doing the nail thing. You see on TV, right? They do the nail thing. They do the, they, they're crazy about this, right? And when it comes time to drying, they're going to get spick and span. And probably, they're not even going to stop there. They're actually going to dry the sink and counter. And then you're going to come next, and you're like, I'm just going to get that dirty. But whatever, I'm not getting in your way, right? Because they know what they're doing. And this is where I'm at right now. It's probably too late to say this. But if you're one of those three, 
and I see you in the bathroom, which is about 50% of the population here, I'm not going to judge you, but I'm not sure you're going to believe me. But I'm just going to say that. I, I really won't judge you. You know, you, you're where you're at for a reason. I'm, I'm where I'm at for a reason. But it's just something I've observed, right? And if, if you have someone next to you that fits into one of those three categories, don't nudge them. Don't tell on them afterwards. When I'm out there standing by the door, I don't want to know what your spouse does. I really don't care. I don't want to know if I'm shaking an unwashed hand. That's cool. Whatever. Do, do what you got to do. I've washed my hands. We're good. But that's really kind of gotten to me recently. I've realized that there's just a lot of different ways to approach this. And actually, washing hands is not a new thing. And it actually kind of bugs me a little bit that we're not over hand washing. Like we haven't invented something that does that quicker and easier yet. We're still living like people lived thousands of years ago. And actually, that's something we have in common with people from a long time ago. In fact, Pastor Tom shared with us last week that washing hands was actually a part of this ritual, ceremonial uh, part of getting to God, this system to get to God. The hard part is, though, that it doesn't really matter how much you wash your hands in this old system. Whether you're a deep surgeon kind of scrubber or whether you're just kind of like, eh. When you look at the layout of the tabernacle, there's the water. And when you come in and you, you sacrifice and you wash your hands, no matter how much you wash, you can still only get so close. You can still only get so close to God because he is pure and he is holy and we are not. And so in the one place in the world where God existed, where his presence resided, only the most pure, only the chosen one, only the priest, the high priest could even get back here where God's spirit resided. He could only do it once a year or he would be struck dead. But then we got to some good news because we talked about our, our series verse, the theme verse, and we talked about what Jesus did for us behind the curtain. And this is actually in Hebrews chapter 6, 19 and 20. It says, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, forerunner Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so Pastor Tom walked us through what that means, that he's a high priest forever, like this guy Melchizedek, and, and that means that he's holy, and that means he can go before the Father, he can be in the holy of holies, and he goes where we can't on our behalf, and he mediates for us. And so while we can't get pure enough, he's done it. And this is kind of where we're going to rest this morning. We're going to talk about well, what does that actually mean, and how does that actually affect our lives? It's good news, but, but how does that work? And before we get into that, we actually have to visit, like, this old system. This old system of the tabernacle and what it looked like and, and ceremonial washing and sacrifices. It gives me this scene in my mind, and I don't think I've seen it in a movie, so I think I invented it. But I, I just see this parade of unhappy, sad, sad people. Like the most depressing parade you've ever seen. Walking up, mom and dad and kids and grandma and grandpa, aunt and uncle and the neighbors and then cousins. And everybody's just walking up together towards the tabernacle, and each family has at least one animal in tow, or they're holding this innocent animal, and as they're walking, maybe the kids are playing, or maybe they're kind of being rowdy, and the parents are hushing them a little bit, and they go, and they wash, and they hand their animal over to the high priest, and it's sacrificed, and then they turn around, and I actually kind of picture a similar scene, you know, kids wanting to run and jump, but parents saying, shh, and we're walking back home, and we're now light an animal that's been sacrificed. And, and the hardest part about all of this system is that while God designed it and while it was better than nothing, like this is a system that helps us deal with this shame and guilt and sin. There's a fatal flaw in the system, and that is that when I walk home, I may actually do or say the thing that's going to cause me to come back here again. 
The fatal flaw in this system is that I am flawed and that I am messed up and that I am a sinner. And so this system will go on perpetually forever. And that's a really tough scene for me to think about. Man, to have to go back again and again and again. And I don't know if I can fully express what this would have felt like, but there's a man who's done it so much better than I have. King David lived and reigned and ruled at a time where it was still a sacrificial system, like we described. And he was actually the king, you know, he was the the slayer of the giant, but he was also a king who actually messed up big. And and David writes a song, and it's in Psalm 51. He writes this song, and it's, it's probably the lowest possible point of David's life. After the victories and after the giants and after all of that, David actually finds himself in a situation where he lusts after his friend and loyal servant's wife. And abusing his power and authority, he actually gets into bed with her. And he finds out a while later that she's pregnant with his child. And the whole time this is happening, his loyal friend and and subject and soldier is out fighting a battle on his kingdom's behalf. And David does the unthinkable. To cover all of this up, he actually has this friend of his assassinated. To deceive everybody, to keep it hush-hush, to, to preserve reputations. And, and the God sends a prophet to him. And the prophet says, listen, man, the gig is up. God has seen what you've done. It's wrong. It's in this low, low point that David actually writes this song. And I don't, I don't think of him as a Nashville writer, like at some fancy desk, writing this and thinking, man, this is going to be a hit. What do I put on the end of it? I picture him weeping over his bed. This song being written in his heart about the desperation that he feels in this really, really tough moment. And so listen to David. This is actually about halfway through this psalm. We'll go back to the beginning, but I need you to see the headspace that he's in in this moment. David's crying out, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Maybe you've been in a similar place as David. Maybe your highlight reel or low light reel didn't look the same. But David's just said a lot of things in poetic language that a lot of us can identify with. God, please don't leave me. God, don't leave me here with my mess. Don't leave me here with myself. God, my, my heart is not pure. It's messed up. It's broken. Would you please trade this out for another one? God, I have sinned badly. And actually, God, I just actually need you to fix this. And if you'll fix this, you know what I'll do? I'll go out and I'll preach to everybody. I'll tell everybody, don't mess up like I did. Don't find yourself where I find myself right now. And God, my spirit, it's not even willing. Like, I can't even do good. Can you make me want to do good? God, I don't have much to offer you. And I know you better than this. I know that actually what you want more than sacrifices is you want me to do the right thing. And I just can't. And all I have to offer you is this broken, messed up heart. Don't let this be the last straw, God. And the problem here is that David, 
no matter how much he talks about this and no matter how much he wants this, he's dead to rights. Like, he's easy to convict here. Everybody knows. This is all over the news cycle. Everybody in the kingdom has heard rumors. Like, there's just proof. It's done. God knows. And David actually knows that. He actually says it. He, is, he, he starts in verse 3. He says, listen, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. In fact, it's probably the only thing David can think about in this moment. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are so right in your verdict and justified when you judge God. God, if you've, if you've laid out my transgressions against me and you've judged me, you're correct. Like, I can't even argue. I'm dead to rights. And then David says something that I think is actually so helpful. He says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yeah, you desired faithfulness in the, even in the womb. David's song that he's writing is actually a confession that most of humanity can identify with. And then he tacks this theological truth on the end that helps me so much. Because it's not just a stack of sins that I know about that I can stack up and say, yes, I'm not proud of that. And those got me here. It's actually sins I'm not even sure I know about. Like, I feel like maybe I messed up and I leave feeling kind of awkward, like maybe I said the wrong thing. And there's no rule about it, but it doesn't feel right. And then there's the stuff that was done to me that wasn't even my fault. It was someone else's sin. And then there was the fact that no one ever had to teach me how to sin. Like before I was even born, something was planted in me that as soon as I could talk, I started saying mean, rude things. I don't know why. As soon as I could move, I started taking what I wanted. Who cares what anybody else wants? No one had to teach me that. And David said, listen, you designed me. You wanted me to follow you from the time I was born. But before I was born, something went awry. And not only can I not take back and fix the big things, I can't fix my heart, which is where all this stuff comes from. I just need a transplant, God. I need a brand new heart. I, I can't do this. And as David is guilty and as he is so condemned in this situation, he does what anybody does when they're convicted of guilt. That last glimmer of hope is, is there's still an appeal. And the appeal has to be something bigger than your own track record. You've got to appeal to something greater than what you've put together. So you actually appeal to mercy from a judge. And this is actually how the psalm started. So let's go all the way back to the beginning of Psalm 51. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The only hope David has is that what he believes about God, that compassion and that unfailing love, what he believes is true of God's character is still true for him even though he's messed up big. And I wonder if if that much time has passed in our own lives, if we're that much different from David, if there are times where we sit and wonder, God, is there anything about you that still sounds like what I read about, God? Are you still full of compassion? Do you still have unfailing love, or have I kind of done the thing that put me over the edge? Pastor Tom talked about a truth last week that's still blowing my mind. And it kind of speaks to this idea of do we still have an appeal left? Is there a glimmer of hope? This is found in, in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. It says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And this matters an incredible amount because the God that David prayed to was still behind the curtain. 
But the writer of Hebrews just said, Jesus, who entered behind the curtain, reveals to us the exact nature of the God, the Father, who's behind that curtain. If that's true, then instead of wondering a deep, dark place where we are, if God still loves us, what we need to do is actually look directly at the life of Jesus and say, okay, if Jesus is the exact representation of God behind the curtain, then I can look at Jesus and know, is there hope for me? Jesus actually says this about himself in John 14 to his disciples. Verse 9 says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That means if you've seen Jesus, if you've read about Jesus, if you've understood his character and nature, you've seen who the Father is. No more questions about, God, who, who are you? What's the big guy upstairs like? Well, actually, behind the curtain, uh, the big guy upstairs looks just like Jesus does. And luckily for us, when we look at Jesus, that's really, really good news. A couple stories I want to take you to right now. The first one is the woman caught in adultery. We've actually talked about her recently. But I want to go back there because there's an interaction she has with Jesus that blows my mind. She's caught in adultery, in the act of adultery, and paraded around in front of her entire community. Like, if there's anyone dead to rights, it's her. And I almost imagine this woman caught in adultery being paraded around in front of everybody. She knows what's coming next. She's going to be stoned to death. That's the law. I almost can hear her saying, can I just disappear? Can I just somehow just go away right now? I just want to shrink into the background. And it's kind of morbid, but I actually wonder if maybe she's not like, hey, let's speed this thing up. Like, do you have to embarrass me anymore before we get to just ending my life? Because, like, having to live with you all. In the darkest place of this woman's life, Jesus comes alongside of her and stands next to her. And he confronts her accusers. And they melt away. And then this exchange happens in John 8. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. Even though you sinned, even though everybody knows it, even though the whole town talked about it and saw you, even though they all had rocks in their hands, even though you were actually guilty, even though I'm the only one with the, the, the actual integrity and honesty to judge you, even though you're guilty and dead to rights, I don't condemn you. I wonder what that would have felt like for that woman. Like, me, she doesn't even know who this guy is, potentially. But whatever happened in that crowd, he showed that he had the authority to make them leave. And when he said, then neither do I condemn you, I wonder what happened to her shoulders. I wonder what happened to the weight that was on them from all the stuff and the shame and the guilt that was just there. I wonder if they just lifted like never before. And when he said, hey, go and leave your life of sin, basically what she would have heard is, you have a new lease on life. Don't find yourself in a place like this again. Go, you're free. Everybody's gone. Like, go, you're good. What would that have felt like? There's another story. There's two, two thieves crucified on either side of Jesus, one on either side of them. That's why we have three crosses a lot of times. And Luke is telling this story in Luke chapter 23. And as these guys are hanging up there, there's actually one of these criminals and says he starts to hurl insults at Jesus. I'm thinking, how much gall does it take to actually be on your dying breath throwing insults at somebody? Like, this man is in a dark place. And he's hanging on the cross next to Jesus saying stuff like, hey, I thought you were the Messiah. If you're the Messiah, why don't you save yourself and save us while you're at it too? But then there's the other thief. And the other criminal rebuked him, the first guy. 
saying, don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence. See, we're punished justly. We're dead to rights. We deserve to be up here. We're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? When you, when you find yourself on the throne that you deserve instead of the cross that you're on, will you just have a thought of me, like just a passing thought, just remember me and the fact that I just stuck up for you or like whatever you can see that's good, just remember me. And Jesus says something that I am positive shocked this man. And I think it shocks us 2,000 years later. He looked at the man. <laughs> Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. I'm not just going to have a passing thought about you. And you won't have to wait. In fact, even though you're dead to rights and you deserve to be up here, today you will find me <laughs> in paradise. And I was raised in the church, right? And I'm messed up. I've done some stupid stuff, but I was raised in the church, and I know the rules. And so this passage kind of gets me a little bit. In fact, there's part of me that doesn't like it. Because I'm like, sure, you should show mercy, but God, like, shouldn't there just be, like, a little bit of condemnation for this guy? Like, he, he's being executed for crimes. Like, he deserves to be up there. Isn't there just a little bit of, like, you know, hand slapping or, like, Jesus could, like, make him do catechisms or something first? Like, what should he do before he gets to slide in underneath the garage door as it closes, right? Where I was born, they call this getting in by the skin of your teeth. You guys heard that? It's a really, really gross idea. But this guy just made it into heaven by the skin of his teeth, if you're thinking about it like I am. He did just slide underneath the door as it closed. Like, that's not fair. Like, I get it. You're good. But, like, but when I'm thinking that way, I'm actually forgetting something. And that is that the one who just pardoned him is Jesus. And the margin of his pardoning is the death and resurrection of the once and for all sacrifice and that means that you don't stack up your sins and try to weigh them out with the good things you did anymore. And it doesn't mean that if you just acknowledge God on your deathbed, you haven't been a Christian long enough. And as weird as that is for me to accept, because all my life I've been taught that that's the way it works, that's not how it works. Because the one who pardoned him is the one who paid the price. He's the only one who has the right to judge anybody. And he said, hey, you're with me. You're good. You're going to see me in paradise. The margin of his, his making it into heaven is Jesus' love. His unfailing love that David was trying to appeal to. And the good news for us is this not, it's not like he won the lottery. It may have felt like that. But it wasn't like there were three or four winning tickets and the woman caught in adultery got one and the woman at the well got one and the guy on the cross got one and they make really good stories. So we put them all together and you have really good stories and then too bad for the rest of us. No, there's this, there's this verse in Romans chapter 8 and Paul is writing to the church in Rome and he's pastoring them and there are people getting saved and there are people coming to Jesus and he's trying to help them understand what to do next. And I think this is one of the most important verses I've ever read in my life. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That word those doesn't have a really complicated meaning. It's just those. Like those, like any, anybody that's in Christ Jesus. Anybody who's, who, who actually believes that Jesus is who he says he is, 
and he's done what he said he's done, there's no condemnation for you. If your stack of regrets is this high or this high or this high, if you came to Christ at the age of two and you don't even remember what happened, or if you come to Christ on your deathbed, there is no condemnation for any of you who are in Christ Jesus. That is good news. So, so good. And, and the cool thing is, it wasn't after you scrubbed yourself up either. It wasn't like you got it all together and you became the surgeon and, and your sins are gone now and you did it all. Actually, another part of Romans chapter 5 says, but God demonstrates his own love for, towards us in this. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means at the darkest, most disgusting, most obnoxiously sinful moment of my entire life, the moment we try to put behind us and forget ever existed where we're like David weeping over our bed, that's the moment that Jesus said, yep, that one, I want him. Yeah, that one, no condemnation. Yep, I'm going to die for that one. Yeah, that one's worth it. Yes, you. And the margin of my victory is my victory, so it's not theirs. And you're in. You're good. If anyone's in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And it's weird and we're in a church, and this should be the thing we celebrate, but I still find myself feeling strange about this, like it's too good to be true. But the reality is, it is too good, and yet it is still true. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. This is the point of why we've gathered. Because now, if you're in Christ Jesus, when anybody around you tries to condemn you, when the enemy himself tries to condemn you, when yourself in the mirror tries to condemn you, you now have to deal with Jesus Christ and his sacrifice first. They must point at him and walk through him before they can ever get to you. You don't have to wash yourself up. You don't have to wonder who's watching. You don't have to despair or try to invent a reality where you don't have sin. It's just, it's taken care of. And that leads me to this, this profound truth that has actually described much of my life. See if it works for you. Many of us spend much of our lives trying to manage and fix what God has already finished. How many hours of the day, how many days of the week, how many years have you spent trying to collate and gather up and coordinate and label and gauge all the things you've done that you regret and try to manage and fix and clean it all up when Jesus has already decided that it's taken care of? And that has led, in my life at least, to the second statement that I want to put before you, and that is this. For some of us, we never get to the best part of following Jesus because we're still trying to prove we're worthy of following him, which we're not, or we're still stuck wallowing in our sins. How, how tragic would it be if the woman who's caught in adultery hears go and sin no more and then goes and spends the rest of her life trying to make amends for something Jesus just pardoned her for? How tragic would it be for the man on the cross to say, no, I can't possibly accept that. I'm not worthy. And Jesus is saying the whole time, I know. Of course you're not. But take it. And he said, no, I can't possibly take that. But good Christians who have spent 30, 40, 50 years of their life in the church sometimes live this way. And we don't have to. That's not for us. Now, some of us struggle with this concept of too good to be true. And so if you've got questions, maybe you're wondering right now, well, if this is true and that Jesus is just going to pardon everybody, then sin, I guess, just doesn't matter. And why are we here and what are we doing? Well, there's a really profound truth that's stuck both in John, in chapter 3 of John, and also in Hebrews. 
that we need to talk about because this does matter. And there is some very specific language having to do with people who are in Christ. It matters that you're in Christ. And I want to talk about why. John 3.16 is very recognizable. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, just like the thief. And I love that verse. Love that verse. And then it continues on in 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, which is why Jesus said no condemnation. He wasn't sent to condemn us. He was actually sent to save the world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Yes. And then we get to this next verse, uh, a half of 18. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the part that I want to skip when I'm talking to new believers because I feel like it feels like small print at the end of a contract. You've got all this good stuff, and it's high, and like you're up here, and you're like, yes, and then there's this word but. You're like, oh, man. But I need you to understand, you have to rethink this. This is actually incredibly good news for us. And the reason why is found in Hebrews as well, and that verse we already talked about, it continues on 1-3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation, the God behind the curtain, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, all sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. So this is what Pastor Tom talked about being the mic drop moment, right? And when Jesus is on the cross, he actually says it's finished before he gives up his spirit. When he spends three days in the pit and then he's raised to life, it's over. And then he ascends and he sits down. And this is Jesus in my mind doing this. And sitting down in his lazy boy, kicking his feet up. Like, it's over. It's done. And that has to be a picture in your mind that makes sense to you. And it has to explain these two passages. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But those who are condemned are the ones who look at what Jesus did. And they make a decision. Not to trust him. The best way I know how to think about this is if somebody has, has actually paid for my bill at a restaurant. One of you beautiful people. It's down at Poncho's or something, and I go up to pay, and the guy says, actually, someone already paid for you. And I think, oh, man, that was so nice. I think I'm just going to pay that bill again. Here you go. And there might be some restaurants, not Poncho's, but there might be some restaurants that would say, okay, sure, like, give us some more money. But you can't pay it again. It's already paid. And that leaves some of us feeling weird. And so some of us make one of two decisions. One, we kind of get to this point where we're like, well, maybe there was never a bill to begin with. Right? Maybe there just wasn't a bill. That's why it's paid, because there wasn't a bill. There was no charge. There's no sin in my life, really, right? If we're all messed up and we're all broken, that doesn't seem like a fair system. So maybe there's no such thing as sin. We're all just good. We can just live our lives the way we want to. It's all, it's all cared for. Like, we're, there's just no such thing as a bill. I'm good. Or some of us, we go the other direction, and we will spend the rest of our life trying to find a way to pay that bill, because that was our bill. That was meant for us. And what John 3.18 and what Hebrews says is this. You stand condemned if and only if you refuse to accept the sacrifice of Jesus, who is the once and for all sufficient sacrifice. Everyone in all of history and all of the future will look at Jesus to realize that he is the pinnacle of sacrifice. There's no other option. There's no other system. We're not even allowed to go back to the old system. You can't get a goat or a lamb and go do the old thing. That doesn't work. It's only Jesus. And so while you must believe in Jesus, and if you don't, you are condemned, that's actually incredible news for us if we believe, because that means we don't have to do anything anymore. Not for our sin, 
Now, we might spend the rest of our life trying to figure out how to pay back the one who paid for our sin. That's a totally different conversation, right? Could I live my life after Jesus because I now owe him my life? Sure, that's a different conversation for a different day. But I can never pay that original debt. I can't. It's impossible. Not only was I not able to, but not only was I not sufficient, it's already been paid. And that's incredible good news. For many of us, the fact that that bill has been paid means that we can actually walk around without feeling like those people in that terribly sad parade with our heads down, not being able to look people in the eye, especially not the idea of ever being able to look God in the eye because, man, he knows everything I've done. But for me, I think about the freedom that comes with not having to parade my kids to and from this vicious cycle of a sacrificial system that I can one day tell my son and daughter, you don't have to do that. Christ already paid that debt. You can live in freedom, son. You can live in freedom, daughter. You can hold your head up high, not because of anything you've done, but you just accept the fact that that you're on solid ground because of him. Man, that changes my life. What's behind the curtain? What's revealed by Jesus is a God who has unfailing love, the kind of unfailing love that David desperately prayed for, who has compassion that David prayed for, who came to save us and not condemn us, who has paid the ultimate price so that we can live a different way. My challenge for you today is to actually think, what's beyond my own sin and the issue of my sin? What's the life beyond? What's the fresh start look like? What's my imagination going to do with a life of freedom where I'm not managing and trying to fix what God has already taken care of? Paul's writing to, a, to another church that he's pastoring in 2 Corinthians. And he's writing them and he's trying to help them do exactly what we're doing today. And so he shares within this beautiful truth in, in chapter 5. He says, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We used to look at everybody and we would kind of gauge and judge their sins based on the rules. And we would try to, to, to figure out who, who I stacked up against and was I good enough or not good enough. We'd put them on the scale of justice. That's how we used to think. And we thought about Jesus that way too, but not anymore. Because now we've seen what he's done and we know that he's set, it's at the right hand of the Father having taken care of business. And so now we look at people a different way. In fact, we look in the mirror at ourselves a different way. Because if anyone's in Christ, believes that he is who he is and and, and says he is and he's done what he says he's done, then we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. I'm going to pray for us in a couple minutes and then the band's going to come out and they're going to sing a song. And I I wasn't familiar with it before this week. You might not be familiar with it either. But I want you to listen to the words. And the temptation for me in these moments sometimes is to kind of go through my, my low light reel. All the things I've done and I'm embarrassed about. But I actually want to challenge you to do something else with it today. I want you to hear these words and actually try to believe, if you don't already, that this is how God feels about you. And that this is what he wants for you, is to actually live in freedom, believing that he has cared for the things that you can't care for. And I want you to actually try to imagine what it's going to look like in your life, if it doesn't already, to live a fresh start in your life. Whether you've been at this for like a day or 50 years, what will it look like when I stop trying to manage And I trust that God's cared for it, and I get to live in freedom.
And if you're a person today that either needs to accept this grace for the first time or needs to kind of re-up on it, there's actually going to be an opportunity to come up here in this front section. We have some people that want to pray with you. And if you feel like you shouldn't move on after this song is played until you've had a chance to pray to God, to acknowledge some things, you're welcome to do that. If not, that's totally fine. Spend some time in this song and, and meditate on what it is that we've talked about this morning. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you that as we meditate on your word, we see scripture after scripture after scripture, story after story that reveals you are every bit and more the God that David pled with. You do have unfailing love. You are filled with compassion. And you offer us this incredible opportunity to stop this old system of trying to fix the stuff we can never fix in the first place, God, and accept that you have already done it. And so, God, for some of us, this is going to be the first time we've ever thought about accepting it. God, for us, I pray you would give us the words to say by your Spirit's power. Help us to just say, God, I need that. God, I don't know everything about you, but I know that I want what you've offered me. Father, some of us have been at this for a long time, and Maybe we've prayed all the prayers, but we still find ourselves in this system of trying to fix it all. God, would you let us sit down because you have already sat down? Would you let us rest in you because you've taken care of business already? God, I ask that this kind of freedom would mark the next season of our lives starting today. God, I ask that this kind of freedom would let us worship you in a new way. I ask that this kind of freedom would actually mark our community so we don't see each other the way we used to, but we have new eyes to see new creations. God, we love you, we trust you, we thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.